Hi there, and welcome back to Film School Fess-Ups. I'm your host, Drew Morton, Associate Professor of Mass Communication at Texas A&M University in Texarkana. It's been a while. I've been kind of enjoying my summer and trying to kind of reformat Film School Fess-Ups um, based on some of the feedback I've gotten from listeners. In general, you guys prefer episodes to be focused on either just a conversation with a scholar or a conversation about a fess-up or something special like 4K or the Criterion channel. So I'm going to try to keep the introductory chit-chat to a minimum today. Uh, but I thank you for coming back with us. And uh, today I have a very special guest, Kale Keegan. Kale Keegan spoke with me uh, a couple months ago um, when I was teaching a class on gender sexuality in film at my university. Unfortunately, uh, the software didn't quite work out, so what you're hearing is going to be a reconstruction of our conversation. I hope it isn't too awkward, um, but I think it'll be pretty good. Kale's bio. Uh, Kale is an assistant professor of women, gender, and sexuality studies at Grand Valley State University. He's the author of Lana and Lily Wachowski, Sensing Transgender, which was recently released from the University of Illinois Press, and co-editor of Soma Technics 8.1 on Cinematic Bodies. Keegan's writing has also appeared in Genders, Queer Studies in Media and Popular Culture, Transgender Studies Quarterly, Spectator, in the journal, journal of Homosexuality. He appears in the Vice Guide to Films episode on New Trans Cinema and is the co-chair of the Queer and Trans Caucus of the Society for Cinema and Media Studies. Welcome, Kale. Um, my first question is a very general one, but I find it's really helpful for a lot of the different listeners who tune in. We have some scholars, we have some film critics. It's kind of a, a, a wide audience, and what kind of draws people in is kind of figuring out how people became interested in film. So what, what drew you to the field? What drew you into movies? Um, not even necessarily academically, but just generally. Well, I think um, I share something with a lot of LGBTQ folks of my generation, particularly because I'm very uh, late Gen X, right? So I'm not a digital native. I grew up with like a VHS player and we couldn't record TV. <laughs> so um, uh, movies were really, I, I also grew up in a very rural area where um, there wasn't a lot to do. Um, a town of 1200 people in um, northeastern Pennsylvania. Okay. And so movies were kind of like, a window into different worlds for me. Um, I, I really loved reading, but I also wanted to see different kinds of possibilities in front of me. Um, and so I've always been very fascinated with the way that cinema um, immerses us. Um, and from a young age, I found um, films to be super transformative. I've, I'm really, really fascinated with their effect on the senses, like media's effect on the sensorium. Um, and so when my little town, we had this um, super, super kind of indie guy who turned his house into a, a rental store, just VHS rentals. Uh, <laughs> and I used to go in there and look at all the like posters that he got and put up and everything. And I would just be enchanted. And so um, film has always been that kind of imaginative, had, have that, had that kind of imaginative charge for me. So I've always written about it because I'm always trying to figure out what it is about it that makes it do that. Awesome. So what were some of those early films that really appealed to that interest of yours, If you, even if you didn't necessarily have the vocabulary for the, at the time? Oh, wow. Well, you know, there were movies that took me out of my world, like The Dark Crystal. I must have watched that a million times. Labyrinth, all the Henson stuff when I was a kid, because um, I'm a kid of the 80s. 
Um, but also, you know, movies that seem to have a kind of queer resonance. So I'm sure I'm one of millions and millions of queer people who is obsessed with the sound of music as a child, you know, because for a long time in that movie, Maria is kind of like, there's this like queer family structure that's made possible, of course, and then the film closes it down at the end with the marriage. And I always used to hate that part, you know? <laughs> um, so I always, as a, you know, as a queer person, loved musicals, loved fantasy and science fiction um, for their kind of utopian aspects, I would say. Okay. Where did yeah. you, where did you do your undergrad? And did you know you wanted to study film initially or was it kind of a path to finding it? Oh, wow. Um, I got my undergraduate degree at a small um, liberal arts Catholic college called St. Bonaventure, um, which is in Olean, New York. Um, and I have an undergraduate degree in English. Okay. But we had a wonderful librarian at the school who had just made it his mission to build this incredible library of films. Um, and... I think I systematically watched every single film in that collection with my friends over the course of my undergraduate career and just ended up being very interested in the intersections between visual media and LGBTQ history and, and politics. Um, so when I went to graduate school at university at Buffalo, that was kind of my focus. I I've never been formally trained as a film scholar. I have a PhD in American studies and culture. Yeah, that's not uncommon. A lot of the guests we've had or I've had on have started off in English or, you know, the English program. Like I went to UW-Milwaukee where it was like it was English, but there was a track in media studies where, yeah, you basically took Shakespeare and like a poetry class. And then, you know, you took American film history and like a theory class and you were checked off. So, yeah, I, I find yeah. that it's pretty common where and even going to grad school, most of my, my cohort wasn't from uh, the film kind of side of things. So I, I think that brings such great conversation, though, to the table to have such kind of varied, inter, you know, disciplinary backgrounds coming in. Um, so how were you introduced to the Wachowskis? Which is it just through The Matrix, or had you found them earlier with Bound, or kind of what what started to draw you into your project? Well, I definitely saw Bound when it came out on video. Um, it of course didn't screen anywhere near me. Um, but I definitely remember finding it on the shelf in our blockbuster, um, <laughs> in 1996, seven, when I was like a junior or senior in high school and being of course, immediately drawn to the cover with its kind of queer vibes that it was, um, you know, lesbian chic was big then, but bound was really doing it. I think the best of almost any, uh, studio film that got put out during that time. Um, and so, you know, I, I talk a little bit in the book I just published about my frustration with that film, like try, watching it over and over again, trying to figure out what it was doing to me and why I was so fascinated and also so um, infuriated with it in different ways. Um, because it felt like I was supposed to, uh, you know, as a transgender person, it felt like I was supposed to identify with Gina Gershon's character, who is kind of the more butch character. But over and over again, the movie, I kept identifying more with Jennifer Tilly's character, Violet, who's the femme. And I could never figure out why that was happening. And it frustrated me. And so Bound and I had a long relationship of me working through this problem. Um, I definitely missed The Matrix in theaters because I was like in a small, I guess a large town slash small city 
I was in college. I was really busy when it came out, but I've definitely seen that film probably 75 times or something like that. Okay. Um, so I had this history of watching their films. And, and of course, in terms of genre, I'm really into the kinds of genres they they play with, like science fiction, fantasy, um, noir. Uh, and then this project, I it was like, it just came to me in a flash that I wanted to write about them after Romana came out. So it was kind of a revisitation of like stuff that was in my past in a way. Okay. So I, I'm assuming this was your dissertation and you've already kind of hinted at that this kind of came about just in this flash. How did the project evolve from dissertation to book? Did you, were you, and you can be as open or as not open about that process as you want to be. I know it could be kind of tumultuous for some people. Um, mine I felt like was, it was a pretty smooth transition from one to the other, but yeah, is there anything you'd want to say about that? Adapting it from a dissertation into a book or watching it evolve? This is actually a post-dissertation project. Oh, really? So I, I wrote it um, clean from scratch after getting my tenure track job um, at where I am now. Uh, I spent quite a while trying to find a tenure track job because I finished my degree during the crash. Okay. And by the time I did, my, uh, I had kind of cannibalized my dissertation to get that job. <laughs> sure. Um, and so I just wrote an entirely new um, project from scratch um, starting in around 2014. Okay. So in a way, it was kind of great because I could just write it as a book from the beginning, and I didn't have all the revision woes that you hear people talking about. Um, uh, so... Yeah, I, I don't have the same experience as a lot of people whose first book is their dissertation. Okay, that's that's awesome. Yeah, no, I, I, I can see that being very liberating because so much of the challenge when you're writing that dissertation is finding your voice and having to address different expectations. And one of my challenges was I, I'd come out, I'd come through journalism school, so I had a very kind of accessible type of prose where, you know, you're writing a dissertation and mentally you're like, this has to be important and this needs to sound smarter than it is. And there were points where I remember doing the copy editing on mine, turning it into a book where I reached like a couple sentences where I'm like, what the fuck am I saying? Like, I don't even know what I'm saying. And then like I read it like a third time and I was like, oh, this is really like obvious, but I'm just trying to like hide the fact that it's obvious with this dense and horrible prose and then you know I, I turn in this version that I thought was even more accessible than the dissertation and of course all the you know notes are like this is this is too like easy this is too accessible or cutesy and I was like you can't win here you just can't but yeah it's that's the that's I guess you know I, I envy you being able to just kind of start off and being like this is the project I'm, I'm doing my my voice I know who I am and I'm just gonna kind of own that very cool <laughs> Yeah, I had time. I had a lot of writing under my belt by the time I started this project. So I had time to develop my voice. Um, and and that was really great. It was like a throat clearing um, period of my career. And now I'm kind of like, I figured out how I like to write. And it's actually a lot more pleasurable now than it was at the dissertation stage, where you're trying to make everybody happy and sound super important, like you're saying. Well, what would you say then for, for listeners who may be working on a dissertation or book, what would you say your, your secret to success is? <laughs> Just keep writing. <laughs> I don't know. I, you know, I used to write very instrumentally to try to, um, it's like 
when you're swimming just to keep your head above water, like you're just trying to knit ideas together and you're mainly thinking about writing as an instrumentalization of thinking. Um, but I feel like I've gotten past that stage and now I'm able to write in order to evoke. Um, like I don't have to instrumentalize and explain, like I'm able to just get the reader into a thing. Um, and I think that just comes with time. It's like going from keeping your head above water to like being able to actually kind of navigate the medium. Um, and it, it's about moving from writing as operational to thinking about writing as craft. Right. Um, so that and thinking stylistically about the type of writing you're bringing to a text and why you're choosing that style is something else I try to uh, be careful about with this project, because I wanted the writing to sound like the film's look. Yeah, no, absolutely. And when I was reading um, the sections that you you provided me with, it was I, I envied your your ability to kind of write with with this kind of poetic grace, whereas mine, I was one of my friends read with something I wrote and was like, you sound like a lawyer, like making a case. It's so dry and kind of devoid of, of anything poetic or, you know, it's, it's just, it's, well, it's hard to make formal analysis sexy in a certain way, but you know, it, it just is what it is. Um, but yeah, like reading yours, I was, I was very kind of envious of it and yeah, no, it is, it is this difficult kind of journey. I remember when I was writing my diss, I kind of set myself a goal. I had a year of funding and I was like, okay, I need to write one page a day in order to have a draft done, and it was kind of this fear-based response, which you're not really thinking about craft, you're not really thinking about style, you're like, I just have to get it out there, and so, yeah, it is this kind of journey back to actually thinking about what made you want to write in the first place, and what you find pleasurable as a writer, that's great. Okay, so, let's talk a little bit more in detail about your book, uh, Sensing Transgender. Um, from what I can recall, again, I, I had mentioned in the, the bumper at the front, because this is a kind of reconstruction of a conversation we had about three months ago, um, you're really focused on uh, the Wachowski's ability to represent trans subjectivity. Is, is that, would that be a correct summation of, of your book? Yeah, I would say even, it gets complicated when you claim subject positions because then people want to say, but does the subject really exist? Right. Or they want to bring deconstructive modalities to that claim. Um, so one of the ways I'm trying to approach their work is because the, a lot of the discussion of transgender media is really caught in this idea of representation, right? It's either representation or reception. Um, it, and it's never production. Um, which is kind of where I'm focusing a lot of my thinking lately is like, what kind of culture do trans people make and why do we make it like that? Um, and that's a question that's come up in the wake of this most recent project on the Wachowskis. So, um, what I'm trying to do in the work is think about how innovations in cinema that the Wachowskis popularized through their productions team and, and everybody they were working with had the effect of shifting the public sensorium or the way that people make sense of, right, the environment or what they're seeing on screen in a manner that resonates with trans, what we might call transgender subjectivity or, you know, transness. Okay. How do yeah. you feel like, uh, to make it a little more concrete, how does something like that manifest itself in a film like Bound? <laughs> Well, Bound is interesting because the 
a lot of the way the film is constructed, um, I like to think of its architecture, um, the, the film set itself and how, you know, how it's constructed to be about binaries that aren't really binary, right? There's that really, I think, great shot um, of the two women on either side of a wall and the camera kind of goes over the wall and it demonstrates that these separations are artificial, right? Um, that's a moment that I really think of as being a kind of trans pedagogy about perception versus sense, um, which is a key distinction in the work where you know, I treat perception as this kind of idea of false sensory mastery, that we think we perceive the world and there's a direct relationship between what we perceive and what is real. Um, and what trans studies would say is that um, reality needs to be expanded because there are things that cannot be accounted for by what is simply perceived externally, right? So it all kind of grounds in the sense that queer and trans people are different on the inside than we might appear on the outside. Um, and so a lot of what Bound is doing with all the dark holes and um, false um, exteriors and, and sounds that are traveling around the film are as kind of a mixing up of the senses and a kind of questioning of like what you see versus what is actually going on, which is a common theme in noir, but I think in Bound is really used to kind of get at the problem of gender in a lot of ways. One of the other things I appreciated about our conversation was how you kind of spoke a bit about how the reception of Bound initially started off from this point of confusion, and it's kind of been revisited and reclaimed, and uh, there's this great Olive uh, Signature edition on Blu-ray now where you have folks like Jen Mormon, an old classmate of mine, and... Uh, a bunch of other scholars whose names elude me at the at the present who are talking about essentially how this movie was really misunderstood in 96, 95, mm -hmm. 96, and has kind of come back around to be this this text. Can you speak a little bit about that? Yeah, the original coverage, uh, I would say, like, it's funny because you hear different stories about Bound. It's very kind of, it's got a rep, <laughs> you could say. Um, both in terms of, of like the audience history or reception history where you hear I've interviewed and talked to maybe 15 to 20 different folks just in my friend group, my extended friend group, who were at the Frameline screening in San Francisco and remember that moment as like this amazing queer moment where people like the people just loved the movie. Right. Like, um. But then when you get to the, the critical reception um, where people were writing about the film, there was a lot more skepticism about it. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with how new queer cinema was kind of defining the parameters by which um, a film could be considered legitimately queer, which is it has to have queer authorship or it has to be independently financed, right? These like lines that were getting drawn around this like new kind of genre. Um, it had to be experimental, right? Um, and Bound was none of those things, it, uh, apparently, right? And this is where we get to the problem between perception and sense again, where you sense that you're watching this like pretty radically queer thing, but your perception is telling you this is by a team of brothers and it's a, a Hollywood picture, right? <laughs> um, so again, like I, there are a lot of people who actually wrote about the movie who, who've actually now transitioned um where like 
uh, if you uh, if you look at the history of people who kind of like paid more attention to this film over time, um, there does seem to have been some trans reception going on um, uh, around it that you know much later is obvious in a way that wasn't at the time. That's kind of that's that's pretty fascinating, yeah. Huh. Okay. Shifting on to the Matrix, because we talked about a lot about Bound, and I don't want to, like, outside the context of the conversation we initially had, I'm worried it'll be a little too esoteric. Um, moving on to the Matrix, 20 years old this year, um, what do you think is still kind of relevant today about it? Obviously, we spend a lot of time talking about what was new about how it was telling stories, things like transmedia and spreading that over to video games and to... Um, the Animatrix and the, the tie-ins, uh, obviously you still can see some of that. I would argue that it kind of was a little over, you know, ambitious and kind of imploded a little bit. Um, but what, what would you wait, say? Wait, wait. A Wachowski movie is overly ambitious and imploded a little bit. <laughs> I know, yeah. it's, it's shocking. <laughs> <laughs> but but what do you think still makes it resonate today? I, I rewatched it a couple months back and it, it, it just plays so well. Um, but there's so many different kind of, itches that it scratches and it does such a good job on so many different fronts like the 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 spectacle of the the film still hangs together and you know the character work is still pretty strong so what for you uh really makes the the matrix hum what makes you watch it 75 times i think you said yeah um well yeah that writing about that film it was like the white whale of the project right like there's so much that's been written about it so many people have opinions um, there's this whole weird reception history of it over in like the alt-right community, um, oh, really? where, yeah, where you, have you heard about being red pilled? Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. Right. So people who kind of grabbed on, you know, the movie is, I think without the context of authorship, which now we have, the movie has so many things going on in it that it could, it could be kind of like taken up into any number of various kind of like discourses, right? Which the alt-right appropriation or adoption shows us. Um, but I think, you know, the, it's still super relevant because here we are living in a, in the matrix, basically, you know, of the, of the network. Um, and, you know, the system is like, trying to give us, you know, there's this idea of like fake news and like fooling the, and like we're all being duped into like some grand scheme, right? It just seems like a lot of the themes in the film or a lot of the fears that it raises are actually currently what we're dealing with. Particularly if you look at kind of the potentialities of the film, whether it's going to be taken up as a, a treatise on kind of like the new world order fooling white men into giving up their power or you know, um, a radical kind of trans manifesto about, um, moving beyond the limitations of the body. Um, both of those potentialities are there in the film. And I think we're in a mo in a moment where if you look at what the Trump administration is doing, it's like, that's, it's really about a war over the control of reality. Um, that's what our politics is right now. And that's what the film is about. Yeah, no, I think that's a good way to, to summarize it. And it is, pretty shocking just how even you know there's so many movies you look back from 20 years ago that just you know don't have the they don't ring the same way that they used to and yet yeah the matrix still 
still does on like most of those fronts. Um, how do you? So I'm curious about this. The first one obviously is enshrined and has been held up as being this object that is, you know, timeless and is this kind of classic of action cinema, this classic of sci-fi. Uh, it gets at philosophical questions. It's, it is great for hitting those different registers that you said, uh, even if the the alt right can co-opt it because of that. Um, what's your What's your read on the sequels that have a very different kind of reputation uh, in, historically? And how do you see the theme of your book manifest itself in the sequels? Mm, well, it's only by ignoring the sequels that the alt-right can actually use the Matrix in any kind of meaningful manner because the sequels immediately inform us that the, the sort of messianic narrative of the first film is fake, right? So it's only by saying the sequels are bad and the first one is the real shit right, that we are able to chink away, right, all of the kind of, in the second and third films and Animatrix also, right, there's this kind of immediate warning, like, don't think you're the hero, don't think you're the master of the universe, it's all fake, you're a dupe, you're a pawn, you're a, you're a, produ a product of the system that the system produces to reset itself, which is a real Foucauldian kind of take on the idea of identity itself, right, so... Um, as much as the first film is cinematically probably almost perfect and the sequels are, have been criticized as overblown, overdone, right? Too much spectacle, um, um, being abstruse. I really think there's a really important counterpoint to this, the energy around the, the matrix being just about identity, right? Where there this, there's this very simplistic identity politics reading of the film, which is like, oh, it's about, you know, transitioning and becoming yourself and, and you're the hero. Okay. It's not really about that. If you look at the sequels where what we see is kind of trans, you could say if Neo is read as um, a trans identity, then um, he gets conscripted into the system and becomes a tool of it and never escapes, right? So it's a warning about um, thinking and investing too much in these kinds of heroic identities um, in a way that really needs to be paid attention to more. Um, and that in the sequels is all communicated through the special effects. They tell us exactly what we should be worrying about. Um, the special effects design in both of them is, is is it's emblematically designed to communicate these dangers about being trapped in time, repeating cycles, um, being one of a copy of many 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 copies back into the past. So if you look at the effects design, um, not just as spectacle but as a kind of of what we would call pedagogy, right? Um, you can start to appreciate what the films are doing on a more aesthetic level. So I say they're absolutely necessary. <laughs> no, now you've got me wanting to revisit them because it had, it had honestly, Matrix was one of those films I saw so many times when it came out on DVD because, right, it was the one of the quintessential DVD texts that everyone bought because it looked great and it was a demo disc, so you wanted to show off your, your new system to your friends with the Matrix. Um, but I remember seeing the sequels, I think, one time, yeah. and I was like, you know, the second one, I was kind of like, yeah, that was okay. I actually remember really liking the third, but I haven't, I hadn't gone back to rewatch the first one in probably close to 20 years, and I certainly haven't gone back to watch the second two in a, in a long period of time, but that does get me interested to go back, and I mean, for me, the, the, the main issue 
with the sequels was I felt like the limitation on Neo's arc was that, you know, you basically, it's the problem you have with Superman in comics where you have somebody who has all of his abilities. He's essentially maxed out and, and risen to the top of his arc by the end of the first movie. So what do you do with that character psychologically, which is how we traditionally probably look at stories. Whereas what you're saying is like, no, don't worry about the psychology. Look at how they're using the Neo character thematically. Yeah. I think, Part of what frustrates people with the Wachowskis' work is that it's it's not it's never very much about character. Um, the characters exist to do things. Um, they are allegorical, or they serve narrative or thematic functions more than having an actual interiority. Um, and so, you know, Neo is the screen in the first film that people I think could project themselves on in different ways. And there was a lot of work done about like Reeves' star image. And like why he was so blank, <laughs> he, like this blank screen on which people could kind of see themselves. Um, in fact, if you look at um, kind of responses to that film, it's very interesting to see how like um, both um, many viewers of color uh, globally and then also many white people see are able to identify with his star image right particularly as neo like is this like an asian star is this a white star is this is he both um a sort of like a dark white man right um to quote dyer um but then two and three don't allow you to continue doing that because his agency stops being the question and the films get a lot more concerned with political systems and how they function, right? And so um, he goes from being, um, he, he turns into a function. And I think that made people, some people angry or they felt like there wasn't a place to hang that kind of suture mm. in the film anymore. And so it became like a, those films weren't quote unquote good. Yeah, no, that is it, it's one of those interesting expectations of what we have culturally of a movie. Like I remember seeing um, the adaptation "Never Let Me Go." The mm -hmm. I, I'm not sure if you've seen it, but right the 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 end of that film is essentially all these people accepting their fate. Is like, oh, I got to be an organ donor for you know rich people, and they're gonna take advantage of me. Whereas I'm sitting it with an American audience, and they're like, No, man, like you gotta you gotta stand up and do something. And they just couldn't compute that this cultural difference. Um, based on this the society that they grew up in, where it is authoritarian and where they don't know any better, they don't have a sense of revolution or a sense of individuality, where this is the system they're brought up into. Um, and yeah, where your expectations of that as a viewer and what the film kind of sets up in its diegetic world are so, so different. But uh, we, we live in a very individualist culture and we bring all those expectations to cinema and also to our understanding of like how genre should function, like what kinds of stories movies should tell. No, absolutely. Well, the, speaking about the matrix as a, as a political, as a kind of a analysis of political systems, that's kind of what draws me into uh, the next film I want to talk about, which is speed racer, which <laughs> I, I, I mean, when I came to speed racer, a lot of people had described it, uh, to me, based on my own work in terms of like, you know, the imagery and you have to look at how it's adapting, you know, the different kind of visual tropes of, of manga and anime and, and Japanese art and all of that. And I was, you know, I came into it with that being the candy coating, the, the main area of interest. And then I'm sitting there and watching it and I'm like, 
I've seen it maybe twice, and it's been a little while, so I can't speak very specifically to it, but just this kind of analysis of how, like, corporations work and take advantage of this kid, I, I was uh-huh. I was blown away that Warner Brothers gave them, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars to make this movie that's essentially criticizing everything that Warner Brothers and The Matrix and, you know, this kind of entertainment industrial complex had been doing with, with movies and toys for so long. So, um, yeah, how does how does Speed Racer fit into the themes of your book? Oh, wow. Yeah, Speed Racer is such a fascinating text. I mean, for the reasons you mentioned, absolutely. But I think what really makes that film work as more than just a kind of PG-13 critique or um, an aesthetic experiment is really how the film, at least from my perspective, is working through some of the sensorial implications of not only of trans um, as an idea, um, particularly um, kind of as a way, right? I think Speed Racer actually has some very kind of interesting kind of warnings in it about thinking one can get outside the system like neo doesn't right sure. sorry spoilers but it's been a long time <laughs> he doesn't. um and speed racer seems to play very close to this idea that you can get out right um if you avoid going too slow right or becoming racialized right like so speed's whiteness is played against the kind of um, I want to say racialization of all the other ra- of many other racers in this way that kind of points up how the white body has a smoother time moving through capitalist systems, right? And the only way he's able to kind of get away from um, Royalton, right, the corporate you know plot to absorb his talent by possessing this kind of trans animacy where he's able to move faster than capital and whiteness is like key to that um so i think in the book i talk i kind of have this analysis of how the film is working through these kinds of poles of like how do you get trapped in capital it's either through alienation or racialization and the film is kind of a meditation on on the potential of trans to move outside those structures, but then also to become an expression of white plasticity in this way that's really troubling. Um, and so I, I really think that film is, is, there's a lot going on there about coloniality and globality and motion and movement and, um, and race. I mean, it's called Speed Racer. And to ignore the like kind of racial components of that in a US context, would be, we would be remiss to ignore those. So, um, so yeah, I, I think the film is great, but I don't see it just as pastiche. I see it also as a meditation on some, some of these other factors. Yeah, no, it, it does seem like the, the Wachowskis are so great at using genre and spectacle as this kind of Trojan horse to get people into things. I mean, I can remember how many courses were taught, 
just on like intro to philosophy where people you know like professors were like yes now i can get people to think about plato or something that's really old and stodgy and they'll like think it's amazing and i'll blow their minds like it must have been such a pedagogical gift to have the movies which is in a certain way um so who do you think is is kind of carrying the torch with them in terms of trans representation what other filmmakers what other shows or texts out there are really trying to kind of move the football forward in terms of um, what you were saying in terms of representation or in terms of pr the production culture you referenced? Well, again, I mean, the Wachowskis went a long time before they had a trans character in any text they made, right? So it wasn't until Sunset mm. um, in 2015 that we get um, a character who is affecting a kind of trans representation for us. So, but I would argue that their works are have a trans sensibility and are what we might call figurally or aesthetically trans far before that. So it's sort of like how a sensibility precedes representation or precedes how representation can actually move into um, a medium. And I'd also say sometimes that I find um, works made with a kind of trans sensibility to be far more um, interesting than works that are realist or, you know, and sure. but just have trans characters in them, right? Um, so we're seeing more of that. Um, kind of approach to representation is just kind of like add these like realist representations of trans people to things and that will make them better, right? Um, but in terms of work that is um, kind of operating in a trans sensibility without representation necessarily, which is kind of where my new work is going, I've moved over to thinking about people like Wendy Carlos who are scoring, right? Um, films like Tron and <laughs> A Clockwork Orange and you and bringing a really kind of interesting new aesthetic and technological approaches to mainstream cinema in ways that haven't really been thought through from a trans perspective. I know there's some some work being done on Carlos right now, just on um, Switched on Bach, but my question is more kind of what did the introduction of process sound um, to film scores do? to the cinematic imagination of the 1970s, at late 60s and 70s, and then kind of like, what was the role of trans people in making that happen? Um, which is, you know, kind of, it's kind of interesting to think about the production of process sound um, from a kind of gender studies standpoint um, as a moving from kind of analog to virtual form. Um, I'm also really interested in someone like ContraPoints. Um, do you know Natalie Wynn? No. Um, she has a YouTube channel. She's a, a, a videographer, vlogger, um, whose entire channel is given over to rebutting the alt-right. Um, but she does it through this kind of amazing um, – I don't even know what to say about her work – like uh, perfor video performance art um, where – she has an entire range of characters she plays and she's working a lot with texture and color in ways that kind of create this spectacle of kind of um, rather than trying to rationalize everything. Right. So what she's saying is very rational, but the backdrop is this like super lush textural kind of fantasy space. Um, and I'm really, really interested in kind of her set dressing and, and how she produces this kind of like um, kaleidoscopic 
environment for her viewers um, and how that might actually be the main kind of point of much of the of what she's doing. Um, so those are those are a couple people on kind of opposite ends of okay. Okay. history, right? That I'm interested yeah. in. And how's her how's her work received? Like, does she have uh, like a lot of followers? Does it does it seem to permeate? I, I I'm very interested in the YouTube kind of sensation. Just even talking to my students, were like, I've I've got some colleagues with kids and like unboxing videos. Like, I'm like, this is a thing. Like, just I I don't feel like I'm that much older than my students, but kind of seeing what YouTube and streamers kind of take off and which don't, and what appeals to them and what doesn't, and why. Uh, is fascinating to me. So how how does her work kind of travel across that channel? I think at first she was just getting a lot of folks from the alt-right yelling at her. Um, but then people started to notice, I think the algorithms picked her up. Okay. Right? <laughs> um, and people started to notice her. She's been doing this for maybe three, four years. Um, um, and now her videos get up to two to three million hits. Um, I think at least per video. Um, she's done Ezra Klein's podcast recently. Okay. Um, she's kind of a big, she's someone I think people who are paying attention to trans video, videography and, and cinema should be paying attention to. Um, How often does she release uh, episodes? Is it like weekly or? It's more like m monthly or maybe okay. bi-monthly. Yeah. Um, but She's got a backlog. I mean, when you see them, they are like movies. She's making movies on YouTube. Like she's not, she's taken the kind of traditional kind of trans talking head okay. style and like developed it in all of these sort of origami fold out ways. It's really interesting. Um, I, I know a couple of people who are doing work on her, but I, I'm really interested in thinking about her work in the tradition of actually of trans documentary and how she's like, really playing with different documentary forms that trans people have had to use in the past. Yeah. How this is going to sound like a really strange question. And I'll, I'll explain why I'm asking, uh, how long are they up to an hour? Oh, wow. Yeah. It, it just, it, we've kind of just at in transition with the different kind of video essays we get in. It's, it's kind of, we found that there's like this, almost single mentality like the the single of like it's got to be like eight minutes to 15 minutes or people don't have the patience for it so that's that's amazing that she can get that many views on you know a piece that's pretty epic in scope because even just doing some of the pieces i've done i find out people don't want you know they just want subtitles they don't want to listen to it they want to read it it's it's been it's been a real unique experience trying to figure out what makes different types of video go viral and, and watchable from certain crowds. So, wow, that's that's amazing. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, you know, part of what makes it work is the fact that what she's doing isn't just talking, right? There's sure. a lot more happening aesthetically than just saying things that need to be said, right? Which is we all have all these words saved up that we feel need to be said, but she affects it in this kind of almost kind of synesthetic way where what she's saying and then what's happening aesthetically in the environment, um, sort of like what she's saying is becoming the aesthetics around her. It, it's, it's really fascinating. I think it's fascinating to me because I've also spent time with the Wachowskis who also think of, I think they think about ideas visually, like they communicate emblematically. Right. Like the, their films are, like you were saying, philosophical, but the philosophy isn't necessarily just in the narrative. It's in the aesthetic design of the thing. Right. Like you can learn philosophy by looking. 
not just by, by hearing a, a discourse. Lecture, yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. So this this kind of brings me into the, the next question, which you may have already felt like you've answered, but what do you think are the new kind of challenges faced by those who want to represent transness? I think one of the biggest challenges is that transness is not necessarily visually representable, like certainly not in realist formats um, and not in the way that cinema is necessarily used, right? So if we're going to talk about um, medical transition, that's a temporal process. Um, and it's very hard. I think trans people have been working a very long time with visual media trying to figure out how to represent medical transition in ways that, that illustrate how it feels. Um, but it's a huge challenge for the, for, for like the studio, the studios or like casting directors, like, like what is every film going to be like boyhood? And we're going to have like someone actually medically transition on screen. Like, how are you going to do that? There's a limit. If you're going to, um, stick with realist, uh, genres and styles there's a limit to what you can do and i think we've seen different directors and producers push up against that limit with orange is the new black sure. they tried to get around it by shooting liver and cox's twin brother right um with pose they're kind of dealing with it by having a lot of kind of like post-transition trans women together on screen um and not really going far back into their pasts right um I think trans masculinity is even harder to explore because it like the the changes are so radical. Like people really do look so different, and um, uh, it's just I've, this is why my work is going in the directions it's going in because I'm not sure that like narrative cinema is really a great space for um, a, a politics of transgender representation. I think it's always going to be a very frustrating thing to try to do. So that's why I'm more interested now in like sonic forms or experimental visual forms or non-representational types of cinema um, where we're not talking about like, is that really a trans person playing the role of a trans person? Right. I mean, that's a great goal to shoot for, but I would hate for us to stop there because I think the stories that we can tell are still going to be pretty limited. I'm going to throw you a small curveball, and if you feel completely flummoxed, I will happily delete the uh, the part of the conversation here. Uh, at the beginning, off the record, you and I were talking about video games. Have you seen anything in terms of like art gaming or VR that has come close to capturing anything like this, or had not really? Um, I don't think I know enough about those mediums to comment on that, but I will say that there are... There are some trans game studies people who seem to be doing some great work in that direction where um, like Teddy Pozo, for example, okay. whose work is really paying attention to like not just what a game presents sure. on the surface, but like what the mechanics and affordances of gaming are and like yeah. how how um, game mechanics can be designed to either write in or write out trans user experience. Right. Like so. I was just talking about with you earlier about how I'm playing God of War 4 and being left-handed, the game is like really frustrating. Um, but you can imagine how um, different mechanics let certain bodies in or don't, you know, sure. based on their synaptically mapped or what their lived experiences are. Um, so uh, that's work that I'm not 
actually doing, um, but I do know that other people are on it and doing that work, and I am excited about the field of trans game studies because, frankly, so many trans people play and design games. Like, it's an entire shadow industry <laughs> of, like, trans game programmers, <laughs> um, and I would love someone to write that book about, like, trans game production, but not me. <laughs> Well, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Kale Keegan about his book on the Wachowskis. This week, I've got another special treat for you. We'll have Kristen Warner on to discuss Steven Soderbergh's Side Effects, a film she has not seen, and a director that we both care uh, a great deal about. So please tune in for our second episode of the week. In the meantime, I'll see you at the movies. (laughs) 